hard not to get emotional. <laughs> it's it's a heavy uh, week for sure for the past couple of days. I'm sure especially for you being in Seattle, the protests around the Black Lives Matter movement uh, currently is, is very tumultuous. But, uh, you know, we're here and we want to support all of those who are having to fight against the, the terrors of police brutality that are being inflicted upon uh, everyone that's that's out there fighting for our rights. I just want to offer the whole website's heartfelt support for everyone protesting right now because uh, it means the world to us and that's our future. So uh, we appreciate all of you and uh, a lot of love from the Twin Geeks. That's all we got for you is love. Yes, and uh, we'll continue to support you throughout this uh, uh, very uh, tumultuous time, you know, w- with all of the movement here. But in the meantime, we'll continue running our show as well as a as an additional show of solidarity, I believe. Yeah, I, I think it would be easy. We could make it topical, but really we just want to voice our support. We don't want to use this as a springboard for content or trivialize the news. So, uh exactly. Exactly. It's not our place to do so. It's just, you know, it's important for us to, to know to step aside and just say that we support them. We support everyone who's out there right now. Yeah. Love to all of you and stay strong. Um, and with that, let's go on with the show. Great. Well, welcome back, Calvin. No, that's a tough <laughs> transition to come from, but uh, I am excited to talk about more movie news now that we are getting into things actually happening again. Of course. Um there's actually a lot going on. I, I guess there is no good transition point. Everything feels trivial. <laughs> There's the We Are One Festival, which is a global film festival and really the only film festival we can attend, which is combining Cannes, uh, Cannes TIFF, um, what else, uh, Tribeca, uh, Venice, um, a lot of the big festivals putting forward uh, regional work and uh, a lot of stuff that we'll never get in Seattle, so... I'm awfully grateful for that opportunity. It's all live on their YouTube channel. Um, It's only a seven-day event, so there's a window for everything. Uh, A lot of things just show and then they're gone. Um, So gotta gotta watch it while it's there. Is it a one of the festival? I know, like, there's been a couple of these these online festivals are having to adapt very quickly to something that nobody has experience with. So is this one of them that, like, they only have certain show times and you have to start streaming at that time, or is this one a like like you have a window to watch it within? Um, it's all different for the ones that are coming on video on demand. Most a lot of stuff's coming on video on demand in seven days. So this is like a free preview window for stuff you might have to pay for in a week. So. Uh, uh, stuff like the Ricky Powell documentary that expired. Um, actually, as I was watching it, I got to the credits <laughs> and it expired. So um, I I was 15 minutes late and I was glad there was a buffer. They had a big talk about it with Ricky Powell. He was a the photographer for Beastie Boys, Run DMC, um, um, Def Jam Records. So uh, there's a lot of great New York 80s hip hop context there. Hmm. Well, that's uh, good to hear that there is a little, at least a little bit of flexibility within that, because yeah. I know that's that's kind of the hard thing with these, uh, you know, online festivals that we're experiencing now. But uh, I guess the the nice thing about it is, well, seeing how this will go in the future and see if there's more remote options for festivals, uh, you know, when we do return from all of this. There's, uh, I think the most interesting thing I saw was called Crazy World. <laughs> um that was a that sounds appropriate. A film from I think it was Uganda. That was a, <laughs> uh, there was no budget at all. The entire budget was the passion of the filmmakers, which is really charming to me. Um, it's kind of like a kung fu action flick. That they just fucking love movies, and 
uh, they've seen, you know, maybe a few American films. And um, I love when the kid does his uh, kung fu moves. He'll kick way up and he'll be like, uh, he'll yell something crazy like Van Damme. Then he'll swing his leg down and <laughs> Van Damage. And then, <laughs> then he'll hit the guy on the side with his arm and he'll yell out like a Uganda damage. Um, it's it's very cheesy, uh, corny stuff, but uh, with a lot of heart to it. Right, I've I've heard of this uh, sect of films from yeah. that that region of the world as well. Uh, I think famously, like one that was kind of that really blew up from that area was called uh, "Who Killed Captain Alex." Yeah, I believe is one I've heard of from there, and and it does it has those charms of just like a total authentic and endearing spirit to them. It's just a dedication of love of movies that you know even the most ardent fans over here uh don't have they don't have that wholesome quality of it we're so cynical over here about movies all the time yeah i mean there's so it's nice to, no cynicism it's nice to see right and and that's something i think that's that's definitely uh missing from our our modern uh world in some so many ways and areas it's just so funny uh there's a repeated segment about pirating movies <laughs> they uh, <laughs> one of the characters arrives on like a fake ass cg look at helicopter and uh they, they arrest a guy because he looked at uh rambo first blood uh on on piracy websites so uh there's there's a lot of funny messaging there too uh they know they're going to be pirated and they really enjoy it that's fun that's it's good to hear uh any other highlights from the festival no uh well there's some there's a <laughs> lot of shorts uh there's a ton of shorts um dreamworks i think did three shorts for it uh a lot of good animation there um I, I've been, it's a lot of hit and miss for me, of course, there's a, I don't want to highlight the, the low lights of the festival, right? Um, right. A lot of this stuff well, needs partnerships and distribution and a little polish. It's bound to, to happen, though, when you consume so much at these festivals, like, not everything is going to be, like, top shelf material, you know, and, but it's good, you gotta take it all in, and just the exposure to so much out there is really the, the allure of these festivals to begin with. There's one uh, cool short that's more of a mid-length film, Electric Swan, it goes about 45 minutes, uh, pretty heavy-handed allegory, but uh, I think there's a lot of potential there for the director to either expand it, or uh, I'd prefer if it were even shorter than 45, honestly. Sometimes, yeah, I mean, we're, we're always aiming for that, you know, near future or mid-future length, mm-hmm. but, you know, you don't always have to. It's, you know, I th- it's definitely, I think as, as uh, <clears throat> viewers, we need to place a, f- a greater emphasis on the spectrum of uh, running time in films, yeah. because now everything, we're just getting to the bloated length with features where everything's two and a half to three and a half hours, and it's, it's ridiculous. There should be a place for this kind of nice film with the message that could do it in 45, too. Whether or not I love the film, I think it's... Uh, it's an interesting take. Yeah. Well, what else do we have for news? I know we have some other uh, big things to talk about. Um, There was the launch of HBO Max, uh, another streaming service. How many have launched this year? Uh, A lot, and most of them without a whole lot of fanfare. I keep forgetting that Peacock is a thing. (laughs) Did that come out yet? Yeah, apparently. uh, Like, I, I constantly see it in these, like, listicles okay. of like best streaming services or whatever and it's up like, near the top and i'm like there's other streaming services besides the criterion channel i know i don't know why you <laughs> need a second one um well this is kind of a good addendum to that if you want a few hundred more criterion movies that you could already watch on there uh, well the 
the allure as well of HBO Max for all us older cinephiles here and stuff is that they also have the partnership with TCM yeah. that Film Filmstruck originally had, which made them such a, a wonderful service. But uh, you know, the Criterion Channel has has its own you know grand uh, cultivating service uh, yeah. as well. So I, I don't think you're necessarily missing out by not having HBO Max, but they have more on top of that which is which is great like but also their library is just kind of ridiculous in general it's pretty insane um i think they don't have a good brand i think hbo max is a horrible name for the service yeah what does max tell you really um maximum hbo it's not that uh studio ghibli is a huge hook for me there's four or five that i really haven't seen and and would like to yeah certainly that's that's one of their big pulls there uh it Based on what I've seen, I haven't actually signed up for the service, of course, but, mm. um, you know, it looks like their organization is a bit better than a lot of other streaming services. They have, you know, outlined categories for everything, more or less, that you want. Obviously, it's not perfect, There's... but it's better than, say, like Netflix, which just throws the same ten titles at you over and over. Unfortunately, none of the Criterion stuff is in any of their categories, so uh, they don't Are... present any of that. Um do, do they not have the TCM channel outline? They do. They do have the okay, TCM. Okay, so like that at least. But they they do have a contract with the actual Criterion Collection themselves right. for a lot of titles. But to to not have that highlighted in addition to TCM is very odd. Uh, especially when their like Cartoon Network section has maybe ten products in it. When they have three hundred Criterion channel products and they don't show it, why? That is uh, odd to say the least. Uh, are they? I I know they talked about the, the the Snyder cut was like a huge huge pull for them to bring in people. Is that out now? I I think that's next year. I think that just started next production. next year. Yeah. Jesus. Okay, so that was like an announcement that meant nothing really. <laughs> really, yeah. I think they had the production cut and they gave them thirty million to start working on new uh, features for it. There's a lot of work they have to put in first. I, I would imagine, but I thought, like, the idea of the yeah. hook to get people to sign up is, like, it, it, I thought it was going to be the Mandalorian of the HBO streaming service, right. where it's like, hey, we've got this big, hyped-up thing, and then we're not going to have anything afterwards for, like, a whole year. Well, I'm excited about pretty small things, really. I don't have anything huge to say about it. I'm, I'm excited to be able to see the Abyss, because I've waited years to see it in HD. So. The, the James Cameron film? Yeah. Yeah. The Abyss is... Cool. Yeah, it seems I like, like it. it'll be all right. Um, especially as an alien fan, and the things I'm into, it seems like I'll resonate with it. Uh, I think so. I think you will. It's it's not going to blow you away. I think necessarily. Right. I don't think anyone considers it even their favorite James Cameron film, but it's good. And and it's another piece of like film history in the in terms of the advancement of special effects. Like you can you draw a direct line from the work they did with the kind of liquid. Uh, formation thing in that film to the work in on the t-1000 in terminator 2 so i probably wouldn't have subscribed but they gave me a free upgrade for the hbo account so why not yeah if you have i believe it's if you have hbo go already mm. then it's just automatically like transforms into hbo max which is uh, a very nice incentive yeah for those who um, already have it i like their interfaces better than most things um i haven't watched anything on it um I don't think. Uh, oh, I watched the Looney Tunes. Great, great review up by uh, by Bro right Bro, now. yes, he put a great review. He, I think he's the only person we have who is really deserving of reviewing Looney Tunes. He's he's very knowledgeable on that. He's like a he's like a cartoon character in his own right. I feel so like it's, it's fitting. I feel like his personality is very formed by informed by Looney Tunes already. Uh. Mm-hmm. I, I was gonna say. Speaking of which, didn't you 
go off this week and, and talk with him and Pavlos on a podcast? Oh, that podcast. It was... Yeah, that podcast. It was a very difficult conversation. Uh, I thought they wanted to talk about real things and they wanted to talk about video games. So you, you, I'm guessing you weren't able then to bring them back over to the, the late side of things here with Moviedom. Yeah, I think it's a pretty funny podcast though. I'd recommend people go seek it I'm out. I'm hearing, though. I'm getting worried here because I'm as we're discussing right now, I'm receiving texts from my fiance oh. who's just, she's she's in love with Pavlos apparently on this. She thinks he's so precious, and I'm and I'm getting worried. And I might have to fly over to Germany to kick his ass if he's taking my fiance away from me. Yeah, uh, we we enlisted a cute German to to help us produce video game content. <laughs> what a weird thing we've done, but uh, it's fantastic. Uh, it's it's a secondary show, of course, but it's all right. Yeah, yeah, and uh, you know we like to help the little people. Yeah, of that's, course. That's the that's the main thing here at the end. Uh, I'll I'll check them out tomorrow. I'll see how you did. If you whipped them into shape any bit, maybe I'll have to show up on there eventually to to really get them back in line. We have to help the little people with their little arts because uh, <laughs> we know how much they're suffering. <laughs> um, I... oh, speaking of helping people with art, are there any new films that we can highlight and uh, talk about on the sh- show here? <laughs> speaking of that, there's a kind of invented fantasy of Shirley Jackson who. Uh, a gothic horror writer I was always very fond of. Um, I I always liked her short stories a lot. Uh, this feels like they rewrote a short story uh, directed by Josephine Decker, who I have a very complicated relationship with after Madeline's Madeline. Um, I I think this is also divi- divisive um, because it's an invented story. Uh, they it's just about a fake couple. I think they're fake that that comes and moves in with her and they help her create art. Um, and uh they kind of reawake the muse in her um not not very interesting to me uh it's uh elizabeth moss performance i think we just saw a better one of those in um the invisible man anyway Mm -hmm. Uh, i'm surprised that this doesn't appeal to you because like horror is one of your go-to appealing things and being about a, a horror writer here there, there are just some interesting. directors I think that we have disconnects with, right? Like, oh sure, they, sure. There's some some styles you just don't bite on. Like, it's so moody and heavy, and for me, it's kind of immovable. Like, it doesn't it doesn't move me in any way. It feels like I'm just like dreadfully wading through, a uh, you know, difficult person's life or something. But uh, uh, so. So, so to get it right here, basically you're saying like this feeling you have for someone like Josephine Decker is like similar to how I feel about any filmmaker post 1980. Yeah, I'd say that. Um, yeah, I appreciate how the film handles men a little bit differently. Um, I I'd say if you want a really woke uh, fake biography on Shirley Jackson, that's such a specific thing. Maybe you'll want that. Um, <laughs> I don't really want that, but. Uh, I, I think it's interesting how it turns the tables. You know, how men in movies are usually, like, the important man of the house. And uh, it feels like they're kind of domineering of their partner. Uh, it's nice how it turns that table and is able to look at uh, more systemic issues with men in their society and uh, what they do in the household. Neat. So, uh, I guess sort of related, but totally also unrelated at the same time. I don't know, just all the discussion of biopic of a horror writer and discussion of men and everything reminded me of uh, a great film I think you would like because you have a personal investment in the subject. Have you ever seen Gods and Monsters? 
Gods of, yeah, yeah, I have. Yeah, that's that's much better. That's kind of along that, the lines of what I want. That's the the James Whale biopic oh, for so those cool. who don't know. Yeah, and he's he's the director of a lot of the major Universal horror movies, including the first two Frankenstein films. I wish this felt like that. That is such a cool movie. Um, yeah. I don't know, that's just what it made me think of when you, when you say biopic of horror author or whatever. I just, I, of course, like, being a female horror author, my brain jumped to Mary Shelley, and that logically jumped to James Whale afterwards. And yeah, I, I just remembered. I wrote two years ago about the Mary Shelley biopic. Uh, Shelley or Shirley, pick your poison. But uh, <laughs> um, It's basically the same movie as this, so uh, I, I did prefer that one, ultimately, even though it's more staid and kind of normal biopic-y. At least it is mm-hmm. that. Well, nice to see still a uh, stream of new films coming here to talk about. But there's also a new old film, I believe, you have to tell me about, <laughs> uh, right? Yeah, one from the early 80s. Kind of a lost Western. It's been a great... It's been like the Great White Whale for the Canadians. Uh, they've wanted this restored for a long time. Uh, Kino Lorber's finally stepped in with their repertory department, and we got The Great Fox. The Great Fox, which is uh, starring... Um... Uh, Richard Farnsworth. Yes, right, who we just talked about in the straight story not too long ago. Now, uh, I have to ask you about restorations, which I think will be kind of an interesting topic, both both in this Western we're discussing and the main subject for today. But uh, I find Kino Lorber's restorations are uh, inconsistent at best in terms of some of their output there. But I assume if this one's getting a significant release, not theatrical, but sort of, you know what I mean with the streaming world. But anyway... I'm I'm imagining it has to be pretty noteworthy then, right? It's not just like the slapdash uh, kind of stuff that they tend to put out typically. No, I'm I'm very fond of the restoration here, but for me, this is also just a western that I've been really itching to get to for a long time. So I think it looks beautiful, but I also have a lot of biases going into it. Um, all the story takes place in Washington State and in Kamloops, so. Um, there's a lot of Pacific Northwest bias here, both the south and the north side. Which is always, you know, it's historically uh, documented here in this podcast, very specifically something that you're drawn to. I mean, uh, there's there's not a whole lot of Pacific Northwest um, uh, uh, westerns. There's there's a couple I've discovered in my my great journey through older ones, stuff like Bend of the River and The Hanging Tree and stuff. But uh, of course, famously, we talked about McCabe and Mrs. Miller as like our that's our benchmark one, which is uh, currently unparalleled as far as Washington westerns. I'm going to call them. Okay. Um, yeah, Washington BC westerns. Anyway, it's like a uh, it shoots rain basically the same way as McCabe. Like it has that really misty feeling and the vibrancy of uh, of northwest fields and uh, a lot of trees. And uh, I like a little bit more greenery. Uh, we have a lot of dry, choked out. Uh, desert westerns but uh not so many that are in the forest and uh, really explore like the other kind of beauty that a film could have yeah especially up here we have a very lush uh environment uh that, that is rife for the genre while it it definitely you know gets away from the the dusty feeling of texas westerns and such yeah. you've got a very beautiful and still uh very fitting background with which to depict those stories with the very green ever uh, with the evergreen trees and the very hilly mountainous region that we have here and everything and of course uh the 
Washington, Oregon, Northern California areas were major spots during the gold rush, which is, you know, smack dab in the, the end period there of uh, Western storytelling to take place. The, so The character, uh, his sister in Washington keeps telling him, uh, the gold rush is over. He's like, a, well, uh, I guess I should set it up a little more. He's just escaped from San Quentin after, or he's been released after some 30 years. And he's released into 1901. And he goes and sees the great train robbery in a Washington theater. He's like, well, I can't rob stagecoaches, but trains are like the new, you know, the new gold for me. So uh, he was the first Canadian um, train robber in history. And uh, it is a great Canadian Western, so I do recommend it. I like that that cinematic twist you have there as well, because that is always an interesting uh, aspect that's not mentioned as much, uh, is that the... The end of the West really came along with the, you know, the innovation of uh, so many things, not only the trains, but movies in particular as well. That's like we're right at the cusp there at the end. And so you have landmark films like The Great Train Robbery that uh, I think it's interesting that you can tie them in like that. And so it's the it's the burgeoning of a new uh, Western mythology and the ending of another. Had, uh, and it's always kind of interesting when those crossroads appear. I appreciate it because I had just rewatched The Great Train Robbery a few weeks ago and I that that one shot it's famous for where he's holding the gun right at the camera it's kind of like mm-hmm. replicated in here and um it it's definitely taking on some of that feeling um when we get to the kind of kooky robbery scheme with his uh uh kind of kind of dim friend um his friend's a little bit dim but uh there's there's a lot of fun to be had here Richard Farnsworth is just so sentimental and uh so nice to watch in a western and, you know, I think it's nice to see him in a Western role because he got his career start as a uh, a stunt double in lots of big, famous Westerns. I mentioned it on the Straight Story podcast, but stuff like Red River, and uh, he was in a couple of John Ford films, including The Grapes of Wrath and stuff. So nice to see that kind of come full circle and him take the spotlight after uh, really helping to uh, embolden some of those classic Westerns that we look back fondly upon. Get three coffins ready. Listen, stranger. We don't like to see bad boys like you in town. <laughs> My mistake. We're coffins. We have another Western legend to talk about this week. Clint Eastwood's turned 90. Yeah, that's uh, kind of the, the impetus here for... The, our selection finally getting around to this uh we, how many westerns have we talked about now and we've avoided the the dollars trilogy the famous spaghetti westerns that kicked it all off i think there's just a lot of history there and there's a lot of um uh, how do we want to set up doing three of them we finally decided we'll do it uh every month for these three months yeah we'll do a little feature on these well, we always we've always done a western every month, one western a month, and uh, you know because we both love them so much, and so it was high time that we got to these ones, which are some of the most iconic and uh, you know more noteworthy. And I think we've we've made passing reference to them, of course, before, but mm-hmm. you know haven't really dived into them until now. I think now is just as good a time as any to finally get these these juggernauts out of the way and uh, yeah. you know really establish our feelings. I think on them because they could vary. Uh, with this example being uh, a primary Would one. Would you say this is your favorite of the three? Uh, no, no, not not at all. No, in fact, uh, I I don't like A Fistful of Dollars in many ways. 
which is part of why we were apprehensive to get here to yeah, begin with, because you are are emphatic about him. <laughs> this I don't know if it's our largest divide, but it's close. Uh, sort of. I, I mean, I think there's an understanding here, though, that, that kind of imagines. We're not going to, like debate like we have on other films that have come up before uh like this like this is kind of like we're at a ceasefire here with this one where it's like i see your side and, and you see mine and you know we have to call it understand. a bit of a truce or this will get ugly fast yeah well again i don't have many disdainful things to say about it i think no, any of my okay. negative remarks on the film are uh you know deserving uh you know in, in many ways starting with the fact that it's entirely derivative and uh you know plagiarizing of another film we've talked about on the podcast before you still haven't brought up my zoom background yeah your your zoom background this week is, is the, <laughs> the the flavor of the week each time here is the the inspiration for fistful of dollars an image from akira kurosawa's yojimbo which was the first film that i talked with graham about once you were uh habitually sick one week it, you went to one of my favorite japanese films while i was gone <laughs> <laughs> That one was difficult to miss, but uh, I, I'm happy we have the content too. Yeah, I know it was good. Good discussion. Uh, from now on, I've promised that I'm only going to talk about films you hate, uh, as I did with Police Story there. So Citizen Kane when, when next you week. Miss out. Yeah. <laughs> but no, this is uh, it's highly, highly derivative of Yojimbo. Historic, uh, like, like famously, uh, uh, Kira Kurosawa sued Leone and company for taking the story and plot beats and a whole lot else um, from uh, Yojimbo here. Successfully, and he a, too. Successfully yes. sued. But. He, not, not only that, I believe he, he once famously said that he made more money off of A Fistful of Dollars than he did Yojimbo. <laughs> That's true, yeah. <laughs> because, of how, because of how popular it ended up becoming, and he just raked in all those profits because it's his intellectual property. Um, it, it's indefensible because when Leone set out to make this... He looked at Italian pastiches, and he wanted to make a pastiche of something that was... Uh, he thought, like, the 50s westerns played horribly in Italy, that people were just laughing at the, uh, you know, obvious Americanness of them. So he wanted to make it more inter internationally spun and provide a new perspective, which the Italians always provide pastiches and uh, mix-and-match cultures to an uh, interesting extent. So, um the, the great thing about this, at least, is that it bursts an entire genre of films. So yeah, it is that's, important. That's certainly that's the undeniable thing about it. And like, despite all of its its repetition and its blatant thievery of many of Kurosawa's <laughs> stuff, it is also very individual and unique in its own right. It's this very odd paradox of unoriginality and like inspired stylistic uh, originating. Uh, that really comes from this film, and like historically, you can't ignore its importance by by any stretch. It's you know, it's genre defining, it's iconoclastic, it's you know, so many great things, but also it's kind of like uh, boring at times. I'll say because there's like there's no investment in the plot itself. It just I I feel like it lacks in characters outside of Eastwood. Who in terms is a non-character is the point of him, right? Like. Well, and he, and he does a great job. Yeah. Again, his presence on screen is striking and immediate. It is unfair that he has to compete with Toshiro Mifune in basically the same role in many ways, but he also makes it his own. Again, it's this it's this weird paradox where it's both things at the same time. Like it's like yeah, it's unoriginal, but it's also strikingly individual and unique. Well, the thing is, I I don't like samurais that much. I I hope nobody else on the <gasps> site hears this, but Calvin, I know, but I. <laughs> 
the thing is that, uh, what would I say? I'd say your Jimbo is already kind of a Western, so it's it's in a way an exception for me that I could really enjoy. Um, Mifune, competing with him is unfair for anyone. So I might not be like the sword and sandal guy. I think we have enough of those on the site, but um, I am definitely the spaghetti Western guy, and this is something that I've kind of had since five, six years old. So like 25 years, I've, I've been watching this movie, and even I realize that it's kind of washing over me at this point. <laughs> That's that's definitely been the dynamic here for a long time. Again, one of the great things that was balance us here is that I've I'm such a gung ho John Wayne person, and you're definitely more the the Eastwood type with the Italian uh, proclivity there, uh, which is good. I think it rounds us out certainly in our tastes and such. Uh, but I am kind of curious as to what brought you here, though. Uh, I I do have to say I think people generally are drawn to this and the other dollar films more because of that stylized dynamicism um well since i'm really into like the audio visual side and maricone is my favorite composer i just think it's such an easy natural fit for me and of, of course this is <laughs> maybe we talked about how this has the best soundtrack outside of watching a western like if you just go put it on itunes if you want to listen to this one yeah that's that's the thing i will say about the film is that more than anything else like if everything else fails or feels derivative the score for a fistful of dollars is alive and vibrant and mesmerizing like few things are uh even more so than like some of the later ones to come like the good the bad and the ugly i don't know if it's just because it's been parodied and repeated ad nauseum but something about fistful just feels more refreshing and immediate and you know brilliant and i've often listened to all scores outside of the films you know even more than i've watched the films themselves uh though i guess going back to the other spaghetti western we talked about before uh once upon a time in the west is my personal favorite of the four or five i guess six if you count uh america as well i guess i've also just seen so many italian westerns so i'm also unfazed by something like it being derivative because i've seen a hundred <laughs> movies that are also this movie so I've seen even more carbon copy with less new invention than this has. Um, so right. for me, like, I guess on a scale where you've seen a lot of bad movies, uh, movies that are at least genuine and <laughs> at least try something new, they get a little bit more credit once you get there, I think. Certainly. And like, if you wanted, you could even boil the Hollywood Westerns down to similar yeah. formulas where it's like, good guy rolls into town, has to free the citizens from oppressive people, blah, blah, all that. But like, the, the problem it comes with Fistful, and then again, worse when you keep carbon copying those and other Italian Westerns is that it's the same plot beats, the same structure, sometimes the same dialogue, and it, and it can get very repetitive like as well in in the same vein here is that i'm not as enthusiastic about the original franco nero Django mm -hmm. as well because it is just a fishful of a fistful of dollars but with a machine gun as well a fishful of dollars would be a good movie though <laughs> that'd be funny um i but i have seen a hundred movies that are exactly this and this is the best one of those out of a hundred you know so uh, in yeah. some way i'm scaling up to something else like a even even ones that are knockoffs that I don't think are as good as this, I I really love and give a higher score than this. Like uh, Kioma, for example, um, something like that that's high strung and operatic and adds something new, like on a musical layer with Frank Nero uh, providing like the most masculine representation of like an Italian Western hero. Um, something like that could still get a perfect score for me. So for me to say like this is not a good movie, I, I can't go there. Like. 
I, I wouldn't say it's not a good movie. It's I would say it's good, but that it, it has some serious problems. Uh, I'll say specifically, this watch highlighted in terms of the cinematography, especially, is like really amateur because of the choice to film in like this super drastic widescreen scope. And so every time the camera moves, the edges just turn into a fishbowl. And it's like, it's really disorienting at times. We should say that you watch this on a VHS that's been played 400 times <laughs> from an old video store that you picked up 30 years ago. Or that your parents picked up and passed down to you. Uh, originally belonged to your grandparents. Got ran over by the family van once. Um, so uh, you told me that was the only reason you didn't like the movie, is you were watching a bad copy. Uh, well... well it was a pretty close assessment of how I saw it. Um, <laughs> yeah. But, of course, you know, like a lot of these Italian westerns, I'm sure you'll agree as well, are not in the best condition or not presented no. entirely wonderfully. But, like, this is not necessarily one of them. There are good restorations of this film. It just so happens that the copy I own is an old-ass DVD from a three... <laughs> You know, a single like DVD box set that's double sided with widescreen and it's formatted for old square, you know, television. Oh so the wides, I literally had to like zoom in on my TV with the remote in order for it to not have black bars around the entire side, <laughs> just for the proper aspect ratio. At, at one point, I said as well, I'm like, I could literally see the pixels in some of the frame here. <laughs> I could not. I was watching it on the Kino Lorber restoration, which this one is one of their good ones for sure. That's good. Yeah. Um, then the, the next one, when we talk about for a few dollars, I'll still have this shitty version, but I think the disc itself is better. It actually has artwork on the disc, so I'm a little more uh, positive on that. And then I actually do own the Kino Lorber, the Good, the Bad, and the Ugly release for Blu-ray, so no no complaints once we get to that point. And yeah. also the filmmaking will drastically increase with each entry there to a point where it's, yeah. it's no longer something you have to worry about or think on. Although I think the next one also has a lot of Sanjuro in it. Like even the idea of doing the man with no name as another man with no name is, you know, he's still taking from, uh, uh, from the Yojimbo legacy where he can. Right. But it's, it's at least more original and you've got something going for yourself there. It's not copying as much anymore. Yeah. You start uh, getting it, other characters other than just Clint Eastwood. <laughs> Right, and and once Lee Van Cleef comes in, he has his own part. He's like an actual character, and that's the thing is that Fistful of Dollars is missing the colorful cast of characters that later Leone films are, are going to have in spades. Um, as far as Leone goes, I would probably put this on like a lower end, uh, around like a ducky sucker for me is... Uh... Yeah, that, that one's also good. I like it, but definitely lesser than the others. Have you seen his first film before this? The the actual sword and sandal film, Colossus of Rhodes? That's one I've actually missed. You should... We should I think it'd be worth checking out. He's only directed, like, six movies. I know. So, <laughs> so the one that I've left out. Uh, yeah, it, pretty sure it's the only one. They're, like, they're all westerns, except for Once Upon a Time in America and you know, Colossus of Rhodes. Everything else is the Western. And and that's kind of amazing as well that someone can become so iconic and so uh, visionary as a director with only, like, one kind of film under his belt, really. It reminds me of, like, a, a great athlete. Like, like you talk about, like, Mario Lemieux. Like, oh, that guy's better than Gretzky because he stayed with one team his entire career. That's how I feel about Leone. Like, he stayed with my favorite genre. He's on my favorite team his whole, whole career, you know? <laughs> that that works for uh for anyone who doesn't get it i guess that's a the hockey metaphor that we're going with <laughs> yeah. I, I think someone's probably heard of gretzky out there come on 
I, yeah, that's that's the only reason I knew. I'm like, oh, I know that name. Okay, <laughs> and that's that's it. I'm like, that's how I knew it was hockey. Yeah, but I feel like uh, uh, Leone would be like the Lemieux of filmmaking, like probably the second best guy, uh, you know, after Kurosawa in his the style he does, but but also really the best because he makes the thing I like. Yeah, again, he's he's the the grandfather here of the spaghetti westerns, and the, ultimately the master of it. Once we get to the later films, leading up to, uh, of course, Once Upon a Time in the West, which we already talked about, which is basically this this genre defining ending film that really sums up not only his whole career but the entire preceding western saga, you know, before him, which is an amazing accomplishment, you know, in its own right. But it takes films like this to you know get there and to w- work up to that. I mean, even beyond him, like, it's kind of, I, I can't say you're not going to go downhill after this, like, uh, that after you're getting to, like, Valieri and uh, Petroni and, uh, you know, Corbucci is about even heel, but uh, then you kind of yeah. run out of the significant directors that are, you know, auteurs within this space. Right, Cor- Corbucci's the one other big one I know, and of course I, I mentioned Django already, but also The Great Silence, which is a an equal masterpiece in the, the Western genre there, which we talked about as our, I think that was our second Western ever on the podcast, I after Shane. I think that's right, yeah. Uh, but yeah, uh, other than them, I don't know that I know a whole lot of Italian Western directors myself. That's definitely your expertise, yeah, I guess for listeners, I just look up Petrone and Val- Valieri. I don't even know if I'm pronouncing them right, but uh, I mean that's kind of the the whole shtick, right? Is that you don't pronounce names correctly? I, I've never pronunciated a name properly. Le <laughs> uh, Leone is that how you Le- also say it? Leon, Leon. I think it's Leon or something like that. I say Leone. I don't know if it's correct. Um, I don't actually have a ton on a fistful of dollars. It is. Uh, one of my favorite oh, oh, the... things that I've lived with forever, and so I, it's kind of just washes over me as like a familiar thing. It's like your backyard. You you stop thinking about it after a year. Oh, you know, last week we talked uh, with the Umbrella Shooter Board, we talked about wallpaper movies and how the music themselves, you know, and how forefront a musical film like that mm-hmm. can really become something that you can just put on the background and absorb through the aesthetic and audio marriage of great elements there, which is, I, I think that translates here to Fistful of Dollars as well, because, uh, especially because it takes a more laconic approach to dialogue in particular, uh, and it tries to minimize that as much as possible it becomes something that you can kind of ease in and out of and appreciate on those two levels without actually becoming invested in the material itself. That's that's really the big weakness here in A Fistful of Dollars, whereas Yojimbo, you're really invested in the plight of the... The gang, yeah. you know the people living in the town and the gangs warring like you don't care about the people in a fistful of dollars or even like the villains like i can't even remember the guy's name and they say it like 10 times in the film man yeah i, I don't think they even matter i don't know who they are and um just this one character is what you need to know about a fistful of dollars Right, and so that's why, again, it's it's very hard not to keep coming back to Yojimbo because it is so blatantly imitative of that. It, it does so much of the same plot beats and ideas and stuff, uh, down to, like, tearing apart the, the shed where the couple is hiding and giving them money to run off to 
getting beat up and hiding in a coffin out in you know yeah. somewhere like these these same major plot beats. I mean, it's and it it's just a remake of that movie, <laughs> That's right? What it's it just is. it's such a it's so closely hues in many ways. Like it doesn't deviate it's from it. Not in, hiding it for sure. No, <laughs> so it's no wonder that Leone got sued over it. I think mean, I think that's but, fine, right? Yeah, it's again, it's it's probably the the biggest case of like where your plagiarism works out for you in the end right. because it did end up being so successful regardless of that, and that's where it is this, this kind of odd crossroads here where it's like this is a a really great, uh, it's stylistically it's it's impressive and incredible, but definitely it it lacks in the department where Yojimbo really uh, flourishes, but and so that's why it's a film that's easy to forget like the the actual plot bits and the what's going on for most of the time but it sticks in your memory so yeah. much because of really standout moments the the great score eastwood's really iconic performance like a lot of that will stick with you and it's a film that's better in your memory than it is whenever you watch it i mean i i don't disagree that your jimbo is like a real classic of a movie but uh, i'd rather watch this anytime um i I much prefer to watch this generally than watch Yojimba. Um, right. I think that goes back to what appeals to you. Like you said, you uh, despise samurai movies, I think was your exact words. I despise them. So. <laughs> I'm not a sandal guy. I want big cowboy boots. Uh, why can't Why can't they just wear shoes? Real shoes. <laughs> we're, a, we're a podcast that cares about what kind of shoes you wear and what hats you have on. <laughs> It's it's true. I like hats as well. I like the I, I like the construction of the outfit of uh, Eastwood's character. Yes. He puts on his uh, boots from uh, Rawhide here. Uh, uh, did you see any Rawhide, by the way? Uh, I have not watched a whole lot of Rawhide. I would okay. like to. It's just it's, it's a little hard to get your hands on. But you're right in that that's one of the visual elements that really lands for the film and continues on throughout the rest of the the two. There is that his distinctive costuming is is really remarkable off the bat uh, like, you know with the famous poncho and everything <laughs> everything really came down to casting eastwood like eastwood just went around stores in hollywood and picked up these things from like sports shops like black jeans and you know this wasn't like a costume designer came to him and gave him these things this is like a western guy who's very authentic he's like i'm well aware something authentic that feels good to wear and uh, it became an iconic symbol for like the west yeah yeah, and that's the thing is that this film really not only catapulted uh, Eastwood's career, but it really made him the defining image of the cowboy for a new generation. People have moved on from John Wayne nowadays, and and he's and Eastwood's really the image we think about now. Right. Uh, and and they represent like very two polarizing versions of of the Western hero, which is interesting. Eastwood was never like hiding his his kind of lawless and brash nature no. whereas wayne tries to be a, a, a paragon of integrity <laughs> which is which which, which, is which clashes with his real life person yeah. who's you know a horrific racist <laughs> and i mean i think we could look back at the other way of course uh eastwood's like politically conflicted with what we want but uh at the same time he's just an individual like uh what do we expect from someone who wants to fully embody a cowboy other than a rugged individualist who only yeah. cares in, about in that in fact uh, for you know, kind of uh, to represent him here for his birthday, I actually uh, brought an empty chair with us to talk on the podcast uh, for this episode. Um, was, yeah, I uh, that was that was a moment. <laughs> it's funny <laughs> how in this film, like incidental stuff, just defines his entire career. 
Right. That's uh, and, and it's gone on to be his that kind of thing. Again, I think you know, and he built that persona over the additional two films, and they fed into his legacy and continuing work as the the Western hero throughout stuff like uh, the outlaw Josie Wales and High Plains Drifter and stuff, uh, which which are notable westerns in their own right that I'm sure we'll eventually get around to. But the, I think this is this is the first. Is this the first Eastwood film overall we've talked about, or is this just the first uh, Western we, Eastwood? We watched, uh, we talked about Play Misty for me a little bit. Oh, oh, yeah, we mentioned in that one because we considered doing it, and it turned out that film was garbage. Uh, it's okay. <laughs> uh, it's uh, that that film's funny because it's like Eastwood's just so attractive that this woman has to stalk him. Like, there's no character reason behind it, uh, and yeah. I think it's just like he's such an alluring guy, even. Uh, it's kind of the James Bond thing, like all men want to be him, and then women like him too. I think that was just like a disastrous like thing we did in general because we also had considered talking about Fatal Attraction at that point. I'm like, oh, that didn't go well either. No, I think we watched those two movies like back to back, and we were scrambling, so they both became podcast segments instead of topical. Yes. So actually, yeah, I, j- I just looked up here. And uh, this is going to be like the the first Eastwood podcast. The only other Eastwood material here on here is uh, you did a review for Richard Jewell last year. Oh, did I? <laughs> okay. Yeah. <laughs> um, I think uh, it's funny for me thinking about like his uh, like his signature squint is just caused by like overexposed studio lights, and that's something he even carried with him like into his own stuff. You know, like that's a look. Yeah. It shaped his persona, and you can see in other films where he's not quite like this. I remember watching something like uh, Paint Your Wagon, which uh, came out five years after this, uh, you know, kind of the end of the studio western slash big-budget musical thing, and he's just, like, a really plucky, you know, like, young, charismatic, attractive playboy type. Yeah. Uh, He's not anything like this rugged, you know, persona, even though he'd already done this at this point, but obviously the success of this launched that idea even more so and he just uh, kind of like with john wayne in the same way where he allowed the persona just to become who he was in so many ways yeah i think it i think it really does define him in this whole era of westerns it really moves it forward and allows the western to kind of live on where it didn't really need to anymore Right, it redefined what the westerns were i would say in a heartbeat this film kind of single-handedly put the the killing blow into hollywood westerns and the typical kind of uh mythologizing and uh fanta- you know fantasizing about you know being a hero on the plains and such and it really brought it brought that more violent more tangible kind of revisionist but still playful spirit to the western genre that defines spaghetti westerns now I, when I think of this movie, I think about uh, how hilarious all the sound design is. Um, it was filmed silently, of course, so uh, a lot of when they talk over it, of course they're not saying the same things that they said when they were recorded. They don't know what that is. And uh, a lot of gunshots and wind sounds, a lot of creative, um, more avant-garde uses, which is kind of what attracts me to this subgenre. It's, it's actually kind of interesting because, uh, you know, that that's how Italian films were made during this lengthy time period mm-hmm. is that, you know, they they looped sound afterwards and so that you could distribute it anywhere, you Which, know, and they would just dub it over. I really and, I really do think that's why, like, the Western and the, the crime film, especially the Giallo, works so well for Italians. Mm-hmm. And, of course, the, the results vary in terms of the dubbing, and you're not always going to get something great. And even here, it's not fantastic i would say but it's surprising for some of it considering that the english dub wasn't 
done for it until 1967. Right. So East, Eastwood's recording his line years after having done the role. So the fact that it matches up at all is, is very incredible. It's so good that Eastwood was chosen too, because this was offered to a lot of bigger actors at the time, and nobody wanted to do it because the script was so verbose. Could you imagine coming to a studio three years later and laying down like uh, thousands of lines for this movie? It's such a benefit that he got it to be more succinct. I just in- I think it's interesting in general that they would turn it down for being verbose if the idea was that they wouldn't have to record their lines anyway. Mm. <laughs> because like if if they only imagined it was going to get an Italian distribution, that seems like an easy paycheck. Just go up, say whatever the hell you want on camera, and you know go home and cash the check. That was Eastwood's thing. He just wanted to see how movies were made in different countries. It was like a curiosity project. He had no real aspirations for this to be big. Right, it, it was it was totally like a it just kind of an offer that was slapped on his desk, and he was just stuck playing second string in the western TV show, and and so he had time he to go do this. Made like fifteen thousand off the movie or something. It wasn't like a giant paycheck or something. No, I mean this was really like this was probably like nothing. Like, and I think as we've seen, like even as recently as uh, we kind of saw a little hint of that in uh, Tarantino's Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, where where Rick Dalton's characters offered like a similar deal to go over and shoot. Westerns one of them Italian Italy. westerns yeah Italian <laughs> and, he says and and it and it's looked down upon like is is really nothing like you know like right. a, uh but like bottom of the barrel stuff really there which is kind of what it was at the time and I think you still see hints of that here in the the mediocrity of the, the filmmaking itself but as you can see it really appealed and it blew up and the filmmaking did get considerably better. We have several masterpieces now from this subset of westerns. Just, that, at, um, at least for Leone, let's say it got better for Leone. It, get, it yeah. gets a lot worse. Than it this. does. It does certainly. And again, Corbucci stands out as one another great. But uh, you're 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 going to be strapped for classics outside of that circle. Yeah, I'd say don't look for classics. Look for interesting avant-garde musicianship, and uh, uh, most of them aren't working off understanding of Kurosawa. Let's say that. Uh, it's it's definitely one of those things where like with anything when any kind of genre you take a deep dive into or whatever there's like you got your surface level masterpieces classics stuff that's you know unquestionable and then you're as you continue to search in you're doing it because you like the style and the feel of this and you're seeing what sort of works and what doesn't you're not going in and you're not going to find any kind of deep hidden gem people have been here and done this and gone through thousands and thousands of films that you are staring into the void of and they haven't found it you're not going to either but you might find some things that you like at least a little bit and that's what you're here for you you want something new because you can only watch these same four films so many times I, I do disagree with you i think there are tons of gems that you'll find but um they'll be for personal value they're not going right. to be ones that are going to be heralded as classic films uh, right, I, right i disagree that's... with you completely though i think you could go in and <laughs> only find personal value i don't think you could find classic films at all yeah uh again it's all going to be about personal taste and what you find and stuff and the the quality will vary there i don't think there are going to be any universal masterpieces left to discover i think is my yeah. my main point there even um, stuff where i dug up uh the i think it was the last western we talked about was red sun yeah that, that's by no means a universally acclaimed western in any right and it has detractors aplenty and you know plenty of flaws to point out to you know get at but it's one that i love for various reasons and part of it was my journey of discovery there which i'm sure is 
also a reasoning that you have so much personal investment in a fistful of dollars. And I think one like that, it benefits so much from characters. I think all this really needs is two more characters, and I think it's almost perfect. Um, if it had stronger things to really grasp onto, it would do a lot more. Yeah, and, and, and maybe less fish eye kind of cinematography. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> that, that would be that, nice. That's, it was... that's your old VHS tape. <laughs> Was it was it actually better on the Blu-ray? Oh, yeah. I'm, I'm curious. It, okay, it that's... wasn't it wasn't hard for me to watch. You said it was nauseating. I I, I thought it was uh, gorgeous. At times, like... anytime the camera moved, it just like the entire side just like warped completely, and it was it was super hard to, to watch. But I don't I, I don't feel I that's off base either. It's way too wide the shot. <laughs> yeah, it's like they shot it in Cinerama or something. Yeah. It was ridiculous. <laughs> Um, but I, I'm glad we've gotten to it because this is one that we've been avoiding for a long time. All right, we we had to finally air this out. I had to to shit talk fistful of dollars a little bit, but I, I tried to keep it classy. Tried to be respectful, <laughs> and I and I remarked how it's uh, notable in its historic sense and the good things it has. So, Again, I can't I can't emphasize enough how great that Leo uh, that Morricone soundtrack is. It's it's a saving grace for the film unquestionably. And it really sets the tone for us. We can fight. Yeah. We can fight. Da, 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 da. Yeah. It's so good. I hope I hope you find a natural place to stick in some uh, Morricone in here, maybe. Any, any excuse we have to put that into here, I will gladly take. Um, any Morricone is good Morricone. I, yeah, I, I agree. <laughs> um, with that, uh, we'll be back uh, next week with uh, something else. So. something else and now for something completely different yeah then next month we'll be back with uh, for a few dollars more yep so i look forward to talking about it then and being more positive that time All i right. can guarantee that I, I hope so that one would kill me if you were against it this one i can understand <laughs> this one has fatal flaws that are very apparent to me so yes not not to mention plagiarism and yeah uh pastiche plagiarism call it what you want but i'm good with it Mm-hmm. Well, again, thanks for talking to me about this. Thanks for gritting your teeth and, and getting through me trashing one of your favorites. All right. Um, next time, we'll <laughs> take down one of yours. Thanks, man. <laughs> Have a good day. Wait,